0: Ephesians chapter 1. So we finished Galatians last week. I'd been all intentional and asked Rob to pray for me when he was done with announcements and then call an audible and don't even let him pray. So forgive us. All right. So we just finished Galatians. We're working through the early letters of Paul. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? As Paul is writing to these younger churches, newer in their faith, newer in age, with his goal of solidifying, establishing the gospel in the church. So his job is to establish the truth of the gospel in the church. Now, Ephesians is unique. Ephesians, unlike Galatians where he had visited twice, but didn't really spend tons of time with them, probably didn't know a lot of them, Ephesians is a church that Paul started. And not only started, but spent two, three years there pastoring. And he caused a major riot in the city of Ephesus. I really don't think you've been a successful pastor until you've caused riots in the middle of your cities. And so God bless him, he did that. Uh, From there, God called him out. And there's this tearful kind of amazing, joyful tears, right? Of this prayer on the shores of Miletus when the elders of Ephesus come and join him and they get to pray together. And not unlike... Kind of this moment of sending off Rob and Rob. there's this place where they gather, but there's this relationship. And so Paul has this relationship with the church in Ephesus. And so we get to see that today as he writes to them. This is a church he knows, a church he loves. Now, we were, ta- we were working through Galatians. It was probably three, four weeks ago. And I made a comment in the middle of the message um, about free will and talked about how we don't really have a free will. Let me explain it. If you weren't here and you hear and you have heard the concept of free will, but you can't just determine anything you want, right? You just can't, like if you were, to, if I were to say, okay, so now you, and I'll even, let's go one better. So you, a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. So now we're giving you more than just anybody, right? Can you choose to never sin again? Any takers? So is your will free? Your will has limitations, right? Now, do you have a will? Yes. Do you have freedom within boundaries? Yeah. But it's just like I can't flap my arms, jump up, down, and fly out of the room, right? I have physical limitations, like the fact that I'm overweight, for one, just for one, right? (laughs) So. We have cultural limitations. Just gonna ignore that. We have cultural limitations. I just can't drive as fast as I want to up and down Bloomfield out here with one without either getting in a wreck, or getting a ticket, or getting arrested, or something. Right, my will to choose something, to do something, is there. I have a will, but there are limitations. And for sure, the Bible speaks to spiritual limitations that we have. Now, this is really a two-part message, this week and next week. I'm going to throw two grenades and then go off on sabbatical. So we'll see how that works out, right? (laughs) Leave the mess for Yvette to clean up, who's not here today. So that's good. When we talk about our will and God's will, right? God has a sovereign will. God has an ultimate will, and he has made us in his image. And when humanity was created, we definitely had a freedom of will. Adam, Eve, when they were created before sin enters into human history, they were free to choose to obey, choose to not obey. They had freedoms we don't get. We're born in sin. That Part of that is that we're born broken, broken inside, do broken things into a broken world, and then we join in and we add sin to the world and help break the world more. When we come to faith, God makes us new, empowers us with his spirit. We are opened up to and we are free to do new things, to be obedient, to worship God, to do things. But the Bible speaks a lot about the limitations of us spiritually especially before before salvation, before Christ, before Christ enters into our story. And so the question, that after I made that comment about free will, I was asked the question, so do we choose God? Does God choose us? And obviously there's a a conversation that goes on about that, and, and here's the problem. When the Bible speaks clearly about something, no matter what it is, I don't care if we like it or don't like it, It can call out a sin that we're living in. It can call out a reality about humanity. It can do whatever it wants to do. But when God speaks clearly, it is our job to get on board. Right? Does that make sense? We can ask questions. You can't build a theology off any one passage in Scripture like it requires more of Scripture. But when God speaks clearly, it's our job to figure out, okay, that what God has said is good and that he desires us to understand that and to be obedient to it. The problem is sometimes we don't like or understand what we hear, and oftentimes ourselves get in the way. Fair? And that can be across a spectrum of things. So here's a main idea today. God's sovereignty over salvation. God's work speaks clearly about his sovereign will in our salvation. It is for us to learn and embrace, even if we can't fully grasp it all at once. We're not going to take a topic a theology today, a belief system, and go, okay, we're gonna spend the next 40 minutes talking about it. Can you start that timer, by the way? <laughs> um, we're gonna spend the next hour talking about it. And uh, so, I was at a church of a friend of mine's on Friday night locally. His service goes two and a half hours. Ours does not, just for the record, right? Two and a half hours. I thought, okay, we can up our game a little bit. Anyhow, so when we do this today, we're not gonna leave here like, oh, every question I've ever had is answered. That's not my job today, in fact. Here's what I'd like to ask you. What does scripture say? Because really, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what I think or what you think, ultimately. It doesn't matter what I like or what you like. What does scripture say? And what does it say plainly and clearly? And when that takes place, then it causes us, it moves us towards understanding what God is saying to us. So, Ephesians chapter one, before we start, let me just pray. God, as we open up today, Again, uh, we love your word, and we love to worship you. And I love hearing these voices sing and praise you. I love when we gather and pray, and we love your word. Help us where your word challenges us, whether it is to change something we believe or it is to change something we do, It calls us to understanding you more. So God, ultimately, would you speak today? May I fade somewhere into the background, and would you speak? Jesus, may you be held high. And may your word remind us that we are sealed in Christ by the Spirit. And that you have done amazing things for us, in us, and you desire to do them through us. So we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, verse 1. says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we get obviously the author, we get the intended hearer, it is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, right? Not just one church at one place at one time, but obviously writing so that we can capture, that God can capture this for us. Ephesians is unique, especially in the early letters, as when he was writing to, like we just went through Galatians, he is dealing with an issue, an error in their theology. He's dealing with something because other people had come in and taught them a false gospel. Well, in Ephesus, he spent so long with the church that he's not really correcting anything. He's writing to encourage them. So it's an interesting note to think, okay, without a problem, without a specific topic, Where does Paul just go with the gospel message? And so as he writes, he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. Note, if you have a Roman Catholic or Orthodox background, saints are living people that are saved by Jesus, right? Not venerated dead people who are special. I'm not knocking that. They were saints the whole time when they were alive too, right? To the saints who are in Ephesus, he says, who are faithful in Christ Jesus grace to you and peace. Now, you know, this is a greeting that Paul uses often, grace and peace, grace to you and peace. He adds grace, mercy, and peace in one letter, but every other letter that Paul writes, he uses the words grace and peace to you. Now, that's normal for him, a blessing, kind of an opening, a greeting, but today, I want you to remember it's also an outline for this letter. The first three chapters deal with grace, the gospel, the message of what Christ has accomplished for us. And then the last three chapters, four, five, and six, deal with peace, how we live in light of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so grace and peace, he's gonna gospel and then living in the gospel. What is the gospel? How has Jesus accomplished the gospel? And then how do we live it out, empowered by the very spirit of Jesus? Now this next 12 verses, legitimately is the longest run-on sentence in the Bible. Paul's not an English major, obviously, right? In English, we've broken into three sentences, but even the first part is one super long sentence. But the original, one long sentence. So I just want to read it over us. I want you to hear this. Verse 3. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you should follow along today. I want you to see this. I want to ask you, what do you see often? So there's a Bible underneath your seat. Page 976 if you need help. So here it is, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the promise of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is one sentence in the original. It's one sentence all the way up until verse 11, even in the English version, right? It just added some punctuation to help us figure out, like, what are we doing here, right? So some, some thoughts, just some takeaways, right? One, there's a whole bunch of pronouns that we are to kind of interpret. We'll do that throughout the day. I did a little bit as we were reading. Some of the hymn is God, sometimes hymn is Jesus. But there is a series about 10 in hymns, or in Christ, or in the beloved, all emphasizing what Christ has done, and that when we are in Christ, what is true about us? The word predestined is used twice, chosen once, sealed once, oftentimes gets debated in the church. But there is something that is overwhelmingly true as you read through this. All the energy being exerted in the passage is what God is doing to and for us in Christ. Right? That what God is doing. So what do we do with all this? Right? What we do is we listen. Okay, what is the text telling us? What is it saying to us? Even when maybe what we're hearing might cause more questions than give answers, still, what is it saying to us? What is God saying to us? So back to verse three, it says, "Blessed be God and Father of our, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places." Right. So again, blessed be God, right, who has blessed us in Christ. So the. The movement from God to us, the energy being expended is God's energy on us. God has blessed us in Christ. Verse four, even as He chose us in Him, so even as He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So, same idea. Who is doing the work here? Who chooses whom? Thank you. Even as he chose us in him, even as God chose us, Christians, in Christ, when did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. Is he he unclear or is he clear, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So what do we do with this, right? And we're gonna I have said this already, I'm gonna put it back up, so I'm gonna put another screen. When God's word speaks clearly, but it goes against what we think or believe. Ask, is it consistent with all of Scripture? And if so, are we willing to change? If it's consistent with all of Scripture, but it rubs against what we believe, are we willing to change when Scripture speaks clearly? And that could be anything. That could be about a lifestyle you're living, that could be about a thing you're thinking, a doctrine you believe in. It could be about anything. Anything that scripture deals with. When it speaks clearly, are we receptive? Are we willing to be transformed by Scripture? Is it consistent? I was going to quote all the others in the New Testament, because you can do that, including Jesus. Of who does anybody else say anything different, right? And one after another after another talk about us being chosen by God. Everyone, James, Peter, John, Jesus himself multiple times. But we'll go back through the Old Testament. So, who chose Noah out of a sinful and corrupt culture to be the one he was going to make a promise through and restart? Well, God did. Okay. Well, what about who's next? Abraham. So, Abraham, the father of our faith, is a guy named Abram who doesn't worship God, who lives in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. And God calls him, calls him to believe in him, changes him, gives him a promise, and uses him. Okay. So fast forward. So Abraham tries to have a son on his own. It doesn't work out, right? But the son of promise is Isaac. Isaac then gets his wife pregnant with twins, Esau and Jacob. And the birthright would go to the firstborn. But what happens? God says before they're ever born, nope, second one. Keep fast forwarding through through the Old Testament. God chooses a nation out of the entire world not because they're any good. He chooses them to use them to proclaim his name to the other nations, not their strong suit, by the way. There's an entire book, Jonah, of them not wanting to tell other people, right? But God continually calls out. When they choose, they want a king, they get Saul, train wreck. When God chooses, they get David. Sinful, not perfect, but also the youngest, the least likely, and the best king they ever have, right? Right? God sovereignly chooses all throughout Scripture. Jesus, time and time again, looks at the disciples and says, listen, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? Like, I have chosen you, even the one who's going to abandon me, even the one who's going to betray me, but you are my chosen messengers. You are the ones to go out. I chose you. So Scripture is consistent. We'll look at some of the images of salvation in just a minute. But what do we do with this? Well, first, what does Scripture say, right? So verse 5 In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, that could be sons and daughters, it's for all of us, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So predestined will be used twice today. I love when Christians ask me a question, like, so do you believe in predestination? I'm like, well, the Bible uses the word six times, so it's probably incumbent upon me to get on board, right? Twice it'll be used today, It's it's defined as determined beforehand, So let me read that again. In love, God determined beforehand or predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When you get to a place of you hear something and you see it in scripture and you see it repeated over and over and you're like, okay, it's probably time for me to get on board with it. Then the next phase is like, why? Okay, so what does this mean? Why is it there? And that sometimes is a place where we're trying to understand the mind of God, and we don't always get the answers we want, right? But we get a glimpse at this right here, according to the purpose of his will, that God is doing something that may not make sense to us, but God is doing it, right? Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. Now, he, in love, predestined us for adoption to himself. So he's repeating himself. He chose us. He determined beforehand. Now he uses an image for salvation. Here's what I would encourage you. During the week, later today, whatever you're going to do, go through and look at all the images, all the metaphors we're given for salvation. This one happens to be adoption. All of them, born again, saved, redeemed, adopted, all, all of those grafted in. And again, look at all of them and ask yourself, When Jesus says you must be born again, is there anything you contribute to your physical birth? Why is he using something that you can't contribute to when he talks about your spiritual birth, right? Yours, not your pregnancy, not you giving birth, but your birth. Adopted. We don't see young children without parents running around, knocking on doors, interviewing people and like, hey, what about you? Nope, I don't like you. What about you? Oh, no, over here. Oh, they're crazy. I'm going to go over here, right? Kids don't choose homes. Parents go, and they go choose children, right? Maybe that's a pregnant woman who has committed to adopting out her child, right? Maybe it's, it's back then. Maybe it's a teenager, right, which we know far too many kids age out of the system, and they are not chosen. But the idea is that, we're ta- that God is saying, I adopted you. I predestined you for adoption in Christ. I determined beforehand that you would be an adopted son or daughter in my family. So who did what and to whom? Again, always the saving coming from God, the being saved coming from us, right? The being saved done to us is probably a better way to say it. Again, and saved, salvation, saved, that's also a metaphor in the New Testament used over and over again. I always think of somebody drowning out in the ocean. We live in a beach community, right? So we're drowning out in the ocean. By the time you're drowning in the ocean, can you save yourself? No, or you wouldn't be drowning in the ocean, right? So what are you supposed to do? Just swim harder? No. If that was the case, you'd already be on sand, right? But you need rescue. You need saving. The idea, the words, you need adoption. They're things we can't do for ourselves. That's the idea, Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. Again, God blessing us in the beloved, in Christ, right? This is God's gift to us in love, and somehow it is pleasing to God and in God's will. So there are three kind of sections to this long sentence of Paul. Here's the first one. We'll put this on screen. So salvation ordained by God, verses 3 through 6. God chose us in a Christ for adoption before the foundation of the world as an act of his love and grace. It is the sovereign action of God that initiates our faith, right? The sovereign action of God that initiates our faith. God doing us receiving, right? God doing something that we are incapable or powerless, unable to do. Whole thing is, we if we could do it, we'd have already done it, right? But th- we are incapable of doing it. Verse seven. Now we're going to move to kind of the second section. In Him, which would be Jesus, in Him we have redemption through His blood. That's how we know who it is, right? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, right? So now the next image we're given is riches. Uh, redemption. Excuse me. And the redemption here. Is and I wrote it down. The action of being saved from sin, evil, or error. That's the definition. Like when you, like I don't know if you guys have MacBooks and you triple click, like you hit the, the thing and it pulls up a definition. If you're a Mac person, you know what that is, right? If you look that up. That's the definition. The act of being saved from sin, evil, or error. That you need to be saved from is the idea. The redemption. So saved, right? Adopted. Next week we're going to see dead in sin made alive in Christ. By the way, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Jesus, John 3, born again, redemption, all these things being done to us and for us by God, things that we are not capable, able, power, empowered to do. Verse 7, let's start again. In him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, meaning God's grace, which he, again God, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, Making known to us the mystery of his will. I love that line. Making known to us the mystery of his will. If you're kind of wrestling with this for the first time, I'm not sure that you feel like the mystery here, that you're already getting it, right? Like you're like, oh, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Got it. We read it in four sentences. We're good, right? Or actually one run-on sentence. But making known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, what I would want you to hear today is that God is communicating so that you will understand. Even if you don't in the moment, which a lot of times, if I was going to go sit in Rob Samuelson's math class, which I don't have to do because he's moving now, so that's good. But if I was to go take a math class, like I'd be overwhelmed day one, probably week one or two, right? But eventually things start to click into place. and You're like, okay, so that goes there. I get it. All right. This is how this works. And again, then you keep learning. This is probably like piece number one going in. Right? But the idea is God is communicating that we will know. So, verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his promise, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite things, all things in him, meaning Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. I think we miss this in the gospel a lot that the gospel has this like stated goal of God's to unite things to him, all things to him right? That when God created us and created the world and, and, and set humanity in the world, it worked. It was without sin, without error, and not needing to be saved, right? But it was, and in fact, freedom then was there, and, and the op- opportunity for sin was there. A lot of people are like, okay, so why? Why put the one thing you can't do, why, why give that opportunity, and the answer is that God desires worship, and, and worship requires obedience. You can't say you're a worshiper of God or a follower of Jesus if obedience isn't a piece of that. Right? that. If God is calling us towards something and he is indeed our God, if he's the thing at the top of the org chart, then obedience is an outcome. So even in the best set of circumstances, and this will be important to next week's message, but even in the best set of circumstances, a world without sin, and a people with an ultimately free will, at least spiritually, sin enters into human history. They choose to sin. So what do we do with our will? We also choose to sin. Even though it's not as free, and we're born under the curse of sin, we still choose to sin. We still use our will to go against God. Not only inheriting guilt, and blame, but also contributing to our own guilt and blame. So God knowing that we are now dead in our sins, that we are now in need of saving, that we're now orphaned from God, if you will, outside the family of God, God sets in motion the plan that he had from the beginning of time that Jesus would come and reconcile all things to God. Now the all things, God is not just reconciling you and I, and the others that are going to church this morning or whatever. He's also reconciling the world to himself, the the world that is broken. And I, I mean the physical planet that we live on. He is reconciling all that he created, all of the world, all of creation to himself. And he does that through Christ. And he chooses to do that through us. If you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus... And God chose you, not just for you, but to be a part of the team, to be a messenger for him, that you are saved for a purpose. Go all the way back to Abram. When God calls him and makes him a promise and says, your name will be Abraham, meaning father of many nations, he says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world. Like, I will bless you, you'll become a blessing to the nations. Your job is to allow grace to flow through you to others. That our faith doesn't just dead end in us, and I think that's a a flaw we have in the American church, is we seem to think that salvation is all about us. It plays out in how we think we got there, and it plays out in the idea of what we do with it. That our faith is just to, just so that I don't go to hell or that I can be with Jesus or that I can go to heaven or whatever, however we fill that sentence in. But he says, no, I've adopted you into a family and I've set you on a mission. Next week we'll see saved by grace through faith, not works, but saved to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. That we're called into a family set on a mission on a purpose. So in Christ, so Jesus comes and he lives the life you and I are called to live, but we have chosen not to. And then he comes and he dies a death that you and I deserve, but don't want, and that God doesn't want for us. And so Christ dies a death in our place. And so God himself in human flesh dies, is laid in a grave to cover our sin like we just read about but resurrects from the dead, giving us new life, having victory over Satan's sin and death, having victory over the ultimate penalty of our sin. And that in Christ, we receive that. We receive not only forgiveness, but life. And Jesus goes back, ascends back to the throne in heaven, pours out his spirit on us, the part that we're going to get to in just a minute, making us new, making us a new people. And again, making us new, something we couldn't do that God must do for us. So back in Ephesians 1, verse 11, In him, meaning Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, meaning God, who works all things according to the counsel of his, meaning God's will. So not only is predestined used again, but there's a promise made we have obtained an inheritance. Now, in English, we see kind of like past, present, future. We have those tenses that we use. There's more. Those are the ones we typically think through. There's also a thing called a perfect tense, right? In other words, we have obtained an inheritance. Like, it's already ours. It's already guaranteed. It's already there. We just haven't quite taken possession of all of it. Like, like that we are already completely made new, and then we're like, wait a minute, I've still got all these broken pieces. Yeah, and In Christ, we're already made completely new, but yet there's a process in getting there. It's called the perfect tense, and we have obtained an inheritance. Means it's in that sense of it is already ours, it is already secured, it's already there. We're now walking towards it. It's in that perfect tense. Nothing can get in the way of it, if you would. So read that sentence. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, does that sound like God is saying you might get an inheritance or for sure you will get an inheritance? It sounds pretty sure, right? Now, again, I'm just going to keep poking at this. Now, if we have free will, if we, if we freely choose God and then we could freely also choose not to be a part of God, right? Then can God say with any surety that we will obtain that inheritance? No. He'd be like, I hope you obtain the inheritance that I've prepared for you in Christ, that I've secured for you in Christ. Just stay the course and you will receive the inheritance I've obtained for you in Christ. That's not what he's saying. And I'll read it again. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the promise of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here's a note for the screen. Redeemed by Christ, verses 7 through 10. As redeemed and adopted by God, we are forgiven by Christ's death and made new in the resurrection, guaranteeing us an eternal inheritance in Christ. I can't see this and not think of Jesus' words in John 10 where he says, all that the Father gives me I hold in my hand, and I will raise them up on the last day. No one, all the Father gives me, I will raise them up on the last day. No one can steal you out of my hand. No one. Satan can't steal you out of the hand of Jesus because all that God gives him are in his hand. And no one, you can't steal yourself. I can't steal you out of there. Satan can't steal you out of there. You are secure in Christ. Now, is that trumping over your free will? Maybe. But well, let's just be honest. Your will wasn't free to begin with. You have spiritual limitations on you from birth. We've inherited them. You don't get to choose how healthy you are in life. You get to choose what you contribute to it for sure. But you may have a genetic predisposition to cancer or something else because we're born broken. Beyond our ability and will, we inherit some things that were never intended to be ours. Because of that, we'll see how that plays out next week. So we get the what and then the why in a week. I would have written them backwards because I think differently, right? But I'm sure God is right in doing this. Or I think I'm arguing more with Paul than God. But you have obtained, there's a promise there. Just think through that. How can Jesus guarantee you will? Because he has guaranteed you are in him. You with me? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Now this is Paul writing about himself, And those who are with him, that we are the first, and he's passing it on, right? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now he goes back to the church. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now it's 12 verses in to God's sovereignty over your salvation. God repeatedly saying how he has ordained, chosen, predestined you to finally you get a place where you get to play a role. I get a place where you get to play a role, right? In him, when you heard the word of your truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard the truth of gospel that applies to you, and believed in him, ah, finally, finally, we get something we can do. Our job is to believe, right? Our job is to take that faith that has been placed inside of us to take that gospel that's been awakened inside of us, uniquely, especially us. And we have to walk in it. And listen to what he says: and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's a lot of definitions for sealing, like you know, kind of closing an envelope, or but it's really kind of thinking like that, kind of stamp on. You close up a letter in the olden days when you'd give it to a hand-living carrier and they put that wax seal over it to make sure, hey, this is from, well, it's the jubilee time in England. So it's from the queen. How about we do that, right? I know, we don't really have much for the monarchy, but that you were sealed, that you are guaranteed. It's another what God does to you apart from your action, apart from your energy, apart from what you do, And it's words like sealed, adopted, redeemed, right, obtained an inheritance, sealed with the Holy Spirit. They're not questions. They're not hopes. They're facts. If you are in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel continues beyond forgiveness and doesn't skip ahead to heaven. It remains here in us and with us That we are given new life. How do you know you are truly a believer? Well, you have been given the spirit of God. Right? You know that there is something alive in you that wasn't before. You know that there is something in you telling you to go and follow, to be, and empowering you to be different. That the spirit inside you leads. In John 6, and this is, by the way, there's a series of like, Five or six times Jesus said this. Listen to what he says in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God must act first, right? And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So all that God gives me, All that God draws to me, I will raise up on the last day. And this isn't a paragraph where he says, and I will raise them up on the last day five different times. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are promised an inheritance. You are chosen in love by God. For what purpose? Like why would God? I don't know. I mean, I don't know about me, not you. You're great. I have questions about God's decision with me. But you, you, you guys are good. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear the promise in that, the hope in that, the life in that. Back to verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession to, of it, to the praise of his glory. Again, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, a guarantee that we are family members. Sons and daughters of God, family members with one another. That's why the role of the church is so important today, is that we're called to be a part of a family, not individuals. And again, often we see this as dead ending into us. No, we're called to something. Not just messengers, but family members, members of one another. Having the Holy Spirit inside of you is a seal and a guarantee. So we'll put this note on the screen. Verses 11 through 14 are summarized with... We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. The very power of God living in us is our security that we are in Christ. Every Christian has the Spirit of God in them. It's the very promise of baptism that we talk about all the time. Acts 2.38, when they ask Peter, listen, you're right, we, we miss Jesus. What do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. But that there is power to live today in a new way. Power that we did not have apart from Christ. And that we receive forgiveness and we respond to what God has already done. And then God empowers us for the next step. So why does Paul go through, takes such great lengths to talk about this? And and again, this this is more of a Western or American or modern day question just consider you were growing up in communist China or in a nation with a dictator or something, where you didn't vote, you didn't do those things, and you were hearing about God's sovereignty over you, you would have less questions. Fair? Because you, didn't, you weren't raised with, I get to determine the outcome of things. Not that we really get to determine things, we get to vote on things. So if there's enough of us, it determines something, but that's different. This is a Western American modern idea of asking, like, why would he go out of his way to tell us this? Listen to his kind of a benediction, his postscript thought about the sovereignty of God. And what happens is he kind of writes a prayer over the church. I'm just going to read these six verses, seven verses. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, verse 15, excuse me, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, I pray that you would be blessed to understand how far God has gone for you. Verse 18: having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Here's what he said, that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that God would wake you up to spiritual life, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Do you know for sure that if God has saved you, you are saved? You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry, have I messed this thing up? But you would know that God has saved you the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we will all inherit that family, that eternity. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe that we would hear the power of God when we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we talk about him moving us towards him, that we would worship him because of his great power because he would step in for us in a place where we couldn't, that he would come and move us when we couldn't move ourselves. That great working of his great power, mighty says, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul says, I write this, that your worship of God would be greater. It was about almost 20 years ago. I was wrestling through this very idea, and and the way this conversation came about is I was given a book that was saying that the exact opposite message from today. And it was describing that, and and, and then it kind of randomly quoted a passage of Scripture, and I'm like, I just... I just been, I was teaching through a Bible study at a, at a large church we were part of, I'm like, that's not what it says, and I went back, and I started kind of just reading through this, and I found the author of that book had done a debate, actually at Biola, with another guy, and I didn't know anything about this, and I thought, okay, so here's what we're doing. Lisa and I are going to drive cross-country three weeks. We're going to take some time in the summer driving cross-country, and so we put this debate on, and I told Lisa as I was driving, I'm like... Draw a line down the middle of the page, right? And when this guy uses the verse, I want you to write it down over here. And when this guy writes a verse, I want you to use it over here. And, and so we wrote down and I, I began to just study. Like, okay, who does what here? Like, what's my role? What's God's role? What do we do here? And just listen. And the volume of scripture on this side just drowned the volume of scripture on the other side. The other side's argument was, well, what does that mean about me? What is it? it was all very philosophical, very fair questions. The one guy is, but this is what it says. And he quoted so many passages out of Ephesians that I just began to read the book of Ephesians over and over and over again. And then the book of Ephesians chapters one, two, three, over and over again. And then chapter one and chapter two. And I was getting, and I just, I came to the conclusion, you cannot escape the sovereignty of God here. That you cannot miss and should not miss God's sovereignty over your faith. And again, the, the things that flow out of that, first, lots of questions which there are answers to. There's one question you'll never get an answer to is, why me? Right? Everything else, there are answers. But when you walk away from this on the other side, what happens is two things. One, God gets bigger and more powerful and more glorious and more worthy of our worship. Like Paul goes from this topic to this prayer of worship over them. The second thing that happens, and this is what we'll talk about next week. So if you're here and whatever you think about today, you got to come back next week. What happens is God gets bigger and our sin gets bigger. Our need for a savior gets massive. Something that we are incapable of overcoming. And that it requires a great, big, sovereign, loving God to overcome the mountain of need that I have for a Savior. Two things come out of this conversation, a greater, bigger God that we will worship more, and we will understand our need for a Savior far more because of the vast amount of our sin and death and need. Two thoughts as we close: closed. One, understanding God's sovereignty. We'll put these up when we understand how powerfully God has acted to save us and that our salvation is secure in Christ, we worship the God who is mighty to save. When we hear that we are secure in Christ, it's never an excuse to go do what you want to. Then our question is, are you really in Christ? But when you hear of your security and you know God can overcome your frailty and flaw and sin and choices, we worship the God who is mighty to save. Next slide. Next slide. When our understanding of the gospel moves away from a lifeless gospel dependent upon human will, we see a gospel filled with God's victorious power. If the gospel is dependent upon me or you, we're all in trouble. When it is dependent upon a sovereign God, then our faith is secure. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. For some, this is day one in a conversation, and it is. It is big and and can be heavy and can be hard. For many, this is what we've always talked about in belief. So for some, it is the exact opposite, and that's okay. My prayer today is, what does Scripture say? And it's hard to walk away from this passage and see other, see anything other than your sovereign action upon us that are yours. Let that be enough to just worship you To know that we are safe and secure in your hands. That we are, if we are saved, we are truly saved. If we are adopted, we are truly a part of your family. That if we are alive in Christ, we are truly alive in Christ. We're not just hanging on and clinging and trying hard and hoping for the best. We are secure in you. Let that be the message we hear as we wrestle through this topic of your sovereignty. At the end of the day, I think we all walk away, God, knowing we are better if you're in charge. We are safer when it's your power. And we are for sure saved, adopted, redeemed, alive because it is a work you do and you cannot fail. And so Jesus, we love you, we thank you. It's in your name we pray, amen.